Hello and welcome back to Beyond Boards, a podcast dedicated to the actions and interests of skaters beyond skateboarding. My guest today, Julian Dijkmans, grew up in Belgium where he started skating, but has spent most of his adult life traveling around the world, first as a singer for the punk rock ska band Looking Up, then as a pro skater for iconic brands such as Consolidated or Antis Skateboards, which he co-created in 2002, while also working as a team and marketing manager for various brands in the skateboarding industry such as Carhartt or Ruka to name a few, and also acting in short films, commercials and plays. Eventually he settled down in Berlin, Germany, and it only made sense that he would use his high energy, rich experience and endless creativity to co-launch a creative studio, Cascade, with his partner Lou Andrea Savoir. They both direct and produce documentary work and commercials for brands such as Nike, Hermes, Leica and many more. So here's my conversation with Julian Dijkmans, I hope you'll enjoy it. Well, thank you very much, Julian. Uh, it's an honor to uh, chat with you. To get us started, uh, let's uh, talk about growing up skating. And I, I know you grew up in Belgium, but uh, can you tell me a little bit about picking up a uh, skateboard and how uh, this whole adventure started for you? Yay! Yeah, so also just want to mention that honor is mine. Uh, I think it's, it, I don't think, it's my first podcast, so it's kind of it's fun. Yeah, thank you. Uh, yeah, <laughs> thank you for the opportunity, Quentin, and for your work. Uh, I'm, I've been listening to some of your podcasts, and it's fun. I've been listening to podcasts more and more, and not just on skateboarding. It's been super fun to just, uh, yeah, learn a lot also. So, yeah, I'm Julian. I come from Belgium. I grew up in the suburbs around Brussels, usually always half an hour away from, from Brussels. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I borrowed a skateboard from a friend when I was 11 and that weekend it was just rainy and we just uh, uh, start skating. My brother and I, my brother who is like two years older than me, his name is Ian and he's a skateboarder today as well. Mm-hmm. And so yeah, uh, Ian and I start skating in the living room on the carpet and kind of learning how to do tic-tac and it was rainy outside so we didn't even go outside the whole weekend but we still got the virus for skateboarding mm-hmm. and then i'm sure we started doing some downhills and things like that and then soon enough my birthday came along and i got a, a skateboard and a supermarket one we said back in the day in belgium like uh, supermarket yeah. boards with like big plastic protections everywhere a big bulky thing on the tail so you couldn't even ollie but then at least you didn't scratch your tail oh yeah and yeah, yeah my brother my brother got one too then some friends and then I think we pretty much skated for two years just doing downhills and being oblivious about what actually skateboarding could be. But it is what it is, no? We had fun. We did downhills. We met with friends. So it was skateboarding. Mm-hmm. But then, yeah, we rented at this uh, bicycle store in Brennelleux where we were going to school. And then we rented uh, Animal Chin, the search for Animal Chin, which is like the third or the fourth Pal Peralta video. That's right, yeah. And yeah, we watched it at home with a couple of the friends. And after seeing that video, we went to this kind of little terrace, outside terrace of our house. And we were so excited to try to build some, some ramps with like some, some wood that we had in the garage. And my brother dared to drop in this kind of piece of plywood. Mm-hmm. 
and uh, and then he put the motorcycle helmet we had in the garage to to dare do it. So he had a full on helmet on his head and just dropped in and he did it. And then <laughs> I did it too because you know he was the older two years old brother back then, and so I had to kind of try and do what he does and stuff. And then the virus of skateboarding was completely on. Yeah, we're talking eighty nine when we start ollieing, I guess. Yeah. I remember actually it's funny that you mentioned your brother because I uh, I remembered not too long ago that I I read an interview he did for Sugar uh French skateboarding magazine back in the day because uh very recently you know uh, Barney Page he skated across the UK for the Ben Ramers Foundation and uh it made me think about your brother who did kind of a similar trip from Brussels to Marseille if I'm not mistaken But that was like in early 2000s, maybe 2001 or two around there. Uh, and I remember reading that article and I, I, I had just started skating. And I remember thinking like, wow, this, these guys are fucking nuts. Uh, covering such a distance on a skateboard, it's, it sounds just impossible. But uh, yeah, just made me think of, of your brother and yourself. So yeah. Yeah, he's a, he's a skateboarder for life. And I think he finished uni and just wanted to do something crazy and also maybe something to show how skateboarding matters to him. And then he decided to push on a skateboard with his friend Ineas from uh, Brussels to Marseille. And what's really cool is he learned how to push Mongo because nobody could push Mongo back then. <laughs> Just like Eric Costa and everybody's kind of pushing Mongo or regular, you know, nobody really pushed Switch like maybe Guy Mariano does. I don't know now. But anyway, it was a thing that people did know, push Mongo. But he was like, mm -hmm. I can't push Mongo till Marseille. That's just lame. <laughs> so he started training. He went to my mom's house a couple of times, like just pushing both sides. And uh -huh. so now you see my brother, who's, I think he's like 47 now. He's, he's pushing like regular and switch. Perfect. And with style. And he just skate pools and, you know, he's not like a tech skater. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he can push both. When, when you cruise with him in the streets, you're really like, wow. How does he do that? So uh, it's cool. But uh, yeah, we, we skated every day together in our suburbs. And I think what's interesting to mention is that skateboarding was huge when we started. Like there was a hundred skaters in my school. Oh, wow. And we were skating during the breaks, ollieing over stacks of boards and just living that skate life. Everybody was skating. It was pretty incredible. Yeah. And then by the time of 1990 or 91, then skateboarding died. And at the same time, I switched schools And then I was the only skateboarder in the whole school. Oh, wow. Big change, yeah. Big change. And then we loved skateboarding so much. It was like my brother and I and then a couple of friends. So then whenever we would see a skater, like in Belgium and our villages, we just run to them because we noticed the, the shoes with a hole in, yeah. uh, at the ollie area, you know, and just like, mm -hmm. okay, where do you skate? Do you have a spot? No way, you have a spot. Okay, we'll come <laughs> and skate your church, your village and do these missions. So we started skating Belgium by the time I was like 14, 15, you know, mm -hmm. and there was just one skate park kind of in the whole country that was good, but it was like a pilgrimage. It was like next to Ostende on the seaside, a place called Leffinger. And we were just like, I don't know, it took us three, four, four hours to get there. And then it was open just for three or four hours. And we just like <laughs> skate that thing and then just be so frustrated, close so quick. So I think our local mm -hmm. skate park was uh, the one closer to home in uh, the city called Wavre. And there is a weird place called Disco Roller Skate. And people would <laughs> go there to uh, do some roller skating and pretty much make out. And we were skating <laughs> in, the, in the dark 
in this full-on, you know, club feel. And I remember one guy from my class was like, "Oh, you're you're skating here, oh, cool." But I'm, yeah, I'm just, you know, hooking up with girls. And I was like, "But how do you do that?" <laughs> and then he just said, "Well, look, you see this girl? She's looking at us right now." And then he went and he kissed her. And I was like, "How do you do that?" But then I went back into skating. And I think we showed up there at 12 on Saturday and leave at midnight. So we would skate 12 hours in a row. Oh, wow. And just bring a sandwich. Yeah. So we, we skated like hours and hours. And Jeffrey Ivanov comes from oh, yeah, that yeah. kind of same area and skate park. So we'd skate with Jeff. Uh, we call him Joff, not Jeff. Yeah, yeah. Joff was there. And then this other skater who still skates today, Quentin, Quentin Debris, who's a yeah, photographer. photographer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, my brother and I, and and then these two plus another bunch, we were just like this crew skating this really shitty place, like skating in the dark, you know, with like loud, bad techno, like the worst hits <laughs> over and over. And we just love skating more than anything else. So we did it, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's sick. All right. And so I actually have a kind of a surprise question from a friend of yours that, uh, that can transition into, into sponsorship. Yeah, I'll just have you listen to it. And, uh, and uh, I'm just curious to know uh, what have been some of your first sponsors. But uh, okay, I won't tell you who this is and you, you'll probably recognize his voice. But uh. Hi, boys. Hi, Julian. Um, actually, my question is not a question. It's just like to make you talk about like these consolidated times back in the days because I guess nobody knows about that but you were skating for like this big US skate company and I was fan of you when I was a kid so let's talk about that boys see you soon ciao yeah hi Loic what's up I think I'll just mention it's just I think from like 16 years old and stuff we were like skating all over Belgium and I think we kind of progressed a lot in skateboarding Jake Phelps, he did mention one time in uh, in one of those videos, there's like this window of progression and it's like two, three, four years and, and people get really good. Mm -hmm. And I never really realized that for a long time, but in a way we did, you know, we were skating so many hours and my brother and I got really good. Like like my brother before I saw it in any video would do backside nose blunt slides on mini ramps, you know, and, and really crazy things for, for 91 or 92 yeah and so you would never imagine to be sponsored because actually no one was sponsored like in in the whole country so when skateboarding died some of the best skaters became more low-key and we just didn't hear about them so much anymore and and i guess nobody was sponsored maybe some people were sponsored but we just didn't know you know And yeah, then yeah. it really took took a while. I think it's like maybe when I was 19 or something like that or 20, I skated with uh, these guys. There's like some pros in town, skated the local skate park. So by, by then I moved to Brussels when I was 16. My parents moved to Brussels and then I, uh, I was in Brussels, which was really cool for skateboarding. Mm -hmm. And so I showed up at this demo and I kind of, yeah, I was this local skater and I couldn't help it but skate with the, the pros, you know, I didn't want to watch. I preferred to skate with them, but it, they were really friendly. So it wasn't like this thing of like the local hero guy. Who, yeah, you know, I was, trying to I was be better. With or... them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was with them and I kind of knew better to, I just had my own skating going on, I guess. So I wasn't, you know, really competing with them or whatever. Sure, sure. People say that. And stuff. But there was the distributor uh, from Belgium, uh, this guy called Jacques Dutch from Transit. And he okay. saw me skate from the streets to the mini, to the bigger mini, to the vert. And I skated everything and I was smiling. 
which I always, you know, still do today. <laughs> and then he was like, oh, you know, maybe I'll sponsor you, you know. And so he told me. And then it was like, okay, maybe you should skate for Santa Cruz because that would be a good connection. This is more your style. Mm-hmm. And then he connected me also to, you know, somehow Vance happened back in the day also. Yep. And then uh, also everything happened at the same time. Right all day, uh, Yves Chow, a legend uh, uh, from Belgium who was, you know, the best skater back then. And he was skating for Alva in the 80s and stuff. And really, really cool guy. Mm-hmm. And so all of them started supporting me at the same time, which was really incredible. And maybe even a little pressure because I was like feeling like I was the only one in the whole country. And do I really deserve this? And, and somehow yeah. I tweaked my ankle real bad because of that. So my skating oh, shit, kind yeah. of switched from being quite a, into girl chocolate type of skateboarding and, and tech skating and world industry type of skating from the 90s and, and just kind of a lot of flips to really ollies and, and 50s, but skating also everything. So I was mm-hmm. just kind of skating fast and, and basic for a whole year, couldn't kickflip and I was really bummed. Because of that ankle injury? Yeah, it was blocked. And then the day I went to my first osteopath session, he unlocked it. And then I, I ran home, like from the center of Brussels to quite far. I probably ran like <laughs> seven kilometers sprinting, like just so hyped. And then yeah, I could, yeah. you know, do my flip tricks again. And that was nice. And I rode for Consolidated. Maybe Santa Cruz was like for two years and it was great. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden I had no, no more connections with the Santa Cruz guys. I did go to the U.S. and meet uh, people there. It's actually, I did a World Cup monster and there was a guy called Tim Broch. Tim Broch was like an amazing U.S. pro skater from San Jose. Uh-huh. And he saw me skate uh, with my Santa Cruz board, I guess. And he was like, no way, you ride for Santa Cruz. And he talked about me to Jeff Kendall, who then started sending me packages. So it, it did feel like, whoa, I'm getting on. Mm-hmm. And it was really like huge, but I didn't know really what was going on. So then once I was in the States, I realized ah, they don't really know me or, you know, they, it was, skating was so tiny. So when I'm in the States meeting Santa Cruz, it's maybe 96 uh-huh. and I bought my own flight and I'm skating there, but I'm kind of skating just, I go to a spot, I meet some skaters and I skate with them. And then the next day I meet some other people, but sometimes I was skating alone, like it wasn't so amazing, I guess. And then all of a sudden there was this opportunity to write for Consolidated. So how, how did that happen, the consolidated uh, introduction? Did you? I'm not sure exactly who's behind that brand, actually, uh, who, who launched it. Uh. It's uh, Jacques Dutch, again, from Transwind, who knew I wasn't so happy with Santa Cruz. And mm-hmm. unfortunately, Tim Broch, he passed away. And he was kind of my contact, I guess. And then it was just nothing really going on. And But I was still getting my boards and stuff. So I'm, I was super grateful. But I guess I wanted to hang with skaters and, and do stuff if I'd go yeah. to the US and stuff. So there I met with the Consolidated people. It was uh, Letitia, mostly. Letitia was running Consolidated for all these years. And I'm, I don't know if she's running Consolidated these days, mm-hmm. but Letitia Ruano was uh, part owner of Consolidated with this other guy called Birdo. And there was also Jason Jesse back then oh, yeah, who yeah. was involved. And so, uh, yeah, I kind of start writing for them, but I didn't really know what was going on. And then all of a sudden they were doing a video and they asked me to send some tricks Mm-hmm. And I send a bunch of tricks, but I was thinking, hmm, I'm going to put like two tricks, you know, like, like usually it happened that yeah. American brands would maybe throw one or two tricks in there in a montage of like maybe the Euro guys or the world team. I don't know. And actually I, I got a whole 
a full video part, you know, it was my first video part and it was a surprise. I saw the video, I put it in at home and then I watched the whole video and then I'm like, what? I'm in it, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's and, sick. Uh, that was the video, is what it is, right? Is what it is, yeah. Probably 98 when it came out. And then that, that summer, the, all the guys from Consolidated were in Europe and I connected uh -huh. with them to be like, hey, come and we'll show you Belgium. And so I, I drove a car and got like Scott Bourne, Comet Sochef, Alan Peterson and this guy Howard Cook from the UK. Mm -hmm. And we drove to Belgium and it was weird because at the beginning they were all like not waking up, you know, it's time to go. But I had to kind of drag them out of their hotels. And I was like, oh, my God, no, you know, like, what <laughs> did I get into? But then we got to know each other and we, we did a bunch of skating and we had fun. We, we just kind of visited cities and, and just kind of spent some time together. And mm -hmm. I became friends with most of them and uh, still friends with uh, Scott today. Scott is, uh, is a great friend. And mm -hmm. It was great to, yeah, to be part of that, that thing. And as time went by, I think I, uh, I was kind of wondering, okay, but what's going on? Because when I went to the US, people weren't really available. Skateboarding was still tiny. Yeah. And I would show up and be pretty amped to skate and maybe try to film stuff. But there was never ever like a photographer or a video guy or the, the team writers. They were like, oh, I'm looking for a new place. Oh, I just broke up with my girlfriend and I don't <laughs> want to skate. And, and I was there for a whole month kind of like, OK, I'll skate again with like random people. Or I would always meet people and be like, OK, let's skate. You, yeah, I'll, I'll skate anything, you know. Sure. And then they'd be like, OK, meet tomorrow at the skate shop and I'll be there at 12 you know nobody shows up and i'm like fuck you know so then i was like oh in america people are so whatsapp i was like calling calling them that like, like what's up dude and they don't remember your name yeah, yeah, yeah. and i was like well i i don't know what i'm doing there now and i was so young i didn't know much yeah so i think it just made me kind of wonder okay do i really want to always go pay my flights to go to the u.s and stuff yeah does it make sense is it worth it so yeah Were there any um, local Belgian uh, board brands at that time or, or was it all in the US no, basically? Not, not yet. Okay. I think uh, when I was writing for Consolidated, there was this time where uh, Jeremy Daclin, he kind of, so we had this opportunity to get this van from Carhartt because we were skating for Carhartt. Right. Yeah. And so he's just like, hey, so let's take the van and go skate Milan and, you know, just like hang out. And so Hugo and I went on this trip and then Hugo kind of hurt himself. And then I was with uh, all the original cliche guys. So Je Geoffrey, Geoffrey Vanov that you mentioned was a... Uh... Uh, I can't, dude, it's so crazy. I don't know if Jeffrey was on that trip because that was maybe even before. Okay. But there was like even people who didn't make it to the team, like Mehmet Aydin, who didn't feel like skating so much. Uh -huh. But there was like Pontus and there were like Gigi Rousseau. And so we're skating and, and it's interesting because I think Jeremy noticed that Hugo and I is not really the same kind of skating as these guys. And yeah. I noticed the same, but I was like really impressed by what Jeremy is doing with Cliché and it was like incredible. Yeah. So I guess soon enough, there's this thing of like Jeremy kind of planted a seed into Hugo, like you should do your own thing. Mm -hmm. And with Hugo, we're talking, okay, but we should do our own brand. You know, Jeremy's doing it. And then Jeremy was like, oh, but here, boom. Okay. It's called Antis. You know, it was a uh, Hugo's, uh, Hugo found the name. Okay. And he also drew the two original logos with like the A upside down and then the bird. Yeah. Right, and yeah. then Jer Jeremy was the coolest. He just, uh, 
He was like, oh, you guys need T-shirts? Okay, I have like, I don't know, 100 T-shirts, red ones and black ones. And it had a cliche label. And we just print the Antis logo on it. Or he did, you know? Yeah. And then we just paid him what it cost. And then we had 100 T-shirts. And then he's like, oh, we need a board manufacturer. Boom. In Canada, call this guy. He'll make you some boards. And we did it all with like black money or, you know, whatever money we yeah, had. Yeah, so yeah. probably it was like, oh, shit, we have like, I probably had like 10,000 Belgian francs and Hugo had uh, 600 French francs. <laughs> so we basically had like 200 euros each and we bought as many boards as we could get, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And in a funny way, we kind of turn ourselves pro, both of us, you know, we're just like, boom, here's our name on the boards. He drew some cool graphics, like some kind of monster. It's like a whole, the whole board is dark, but then it has like a, a mouth opening and then it had antis and then our names. Cool. And it was really, really cool. And um, yeah, Loïc Benoit was involved like pretty much from the start as well. And I have to give him a shout because he was really cool to be with us. And then he was also down to call stores and sell the boards because honestly, we were very much skateboarding and yeah. nothing else. You, you know? weren't so... focused on the sales as much uh, as the skating itself. Uh, yeah. And that, that stuff came later once uh, Loïc was shouting on us, like, hey, wake <laughs> up, you know, we have to do this together. And basically, then we had to set up a company. And then uh, Julien Bachelet was also like involved. So then we started the company, the four of us. Mm-hmm. And we were so broke, we didn't even have money to enough money to do a company. So then we somebody had the idea to kind of have friends. Everyone put 1,000 euro or 2,000 euro. I can't remember. Okay, I think it's 2,000. Mm-hmm. So I got my mom to put 2,000 euro, I put 2,000 euro, and then Jérémy Declin put 2,000 euro, and then, I don't know, a mm-hmm. bunch of friends, you know, like uh, Benoit Allègre. I can't remember everyone, uh, I'm sorry, but, but they were incredible. I mean, family, yeah. you know, a lot of moms and dads. or And so we managed to get, I think, 20K. Okay. And with the 20,000 euro, then we could be a company and buy more boards and start doing like more t-shirts or sweatshirts etc you know and, and it really started the whole thing and i think that's officially more like 2002 okay that's right 20 yeah. years you told me that jeremy helped you out in the beginning and uh but yeah so it seems like you you, you had some cool people around you uh, good friends that uh helped you uh lay out the foundations of antis do you know actually where the name comes from because uh, I, I i don't know i never heard the the backstory of the yeah for hugo is la, la hantise so something you're scared of la hantise uh you know of heights or so uh-huh. it's a h-a-n-t-i-s-e in french yeah la hantise and so we just called it antis okay awesome before we go back into aunties and, uh, and, and skateboarding, um, I wanted to ask you about your uh, music uh, period because you were the singer of a ska punk band called Looking Up. And that was, I think, pretty much uh, right, right before actually you became a pro skater or right as, as it was happening. And, uh, but yeah, I was just curious to uh, know how, how that, that whole period of time uh, happened for you and, and uh, what memories you, you have from, uh, from all that time. Ah, yeah, the rock and roll days. Yeah, so from the moment uh, we were in Brussels with my brother. Oh, yeah, no, actually. So he came back from Mexico. He did one year in Mexico, and we were kind of waiting for him to come back. So we started a band. 
We loved this band called Operation Ivy, and we loved all these punk rock bands like Black Flag and Minor Threat and much more. And so we went to shows like every week. We went to punk rock shows, and we had our friends who had really cool bands, and we would go to their rehearsals. And then sometimes they go for a cigarette break or something like that, and we like steal the instruments and start going like conk 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 and <laughs> really do terrible music. But it was so much fun, and and I realized I was like really bad at the drums. I, couldn't really handle the guitar so well. I had a bass at home that I received from a, from a past girlfriend, and it was super cool to have a bass. But I was so bad at this this just playing music and but singing I could. And since my mom's Scottish, my English was like kind of okay and not so French accent, etc. Yeah, yeah. So then it was uh, just this thing of like, oh, okay, we're just gonna do our own band, and we start like practicing songs and and just kind of doing. Punk ska, I would say, you know, we were kind of, you know, angry. (laughs) And then soon enough, uh, some friends, really cool friends, probably the best band from Brussels back in those days uh, called Down But Not Out. Okay. The singer Dennis was like, okay, um, in two weeks or three weeks, there's a show and you're going to open up for us. And we're like, no, we're not ready, Uh, you know. But then, you know, we played it. We, of course, we, we did go. And we probably had like seven songs and we just had fun and did a show. But then that same night, this guy, uh, Lorenz, who did this label called Ice Cream Records, mm-hmm. he was like, oh, yeah, you guys are pretty cool. Like, maybe I'm going to sign you guys on. And I was like, what? On the first show, you know? <laughs> Amazing. And then we, we played some more. And in a way, he just waited a bit that we get better and we played more shows. And then we had enough songs. And then all of a sudden, he was like, okay, you guys going to go record an album at this pro studio in Holland. Somehow, there's this good engineer for like rock music in, in Holland, in uh, Hilversum. And we went there. And at the same time, uh, we were introduced by, let's say, our label to another label. And that label was Epitaph. And somehow, Epitaph liked our music and kind of took over. And so we were signed all of a sudden on Epitaph, which is the, the legendary punk rock label that has Bad Religion, that has that had Offspring, that had all our favorite bands, you know, like it was really incredible. Yeah, it's incredible for sure. Yeah. We were just kids and we really didn't know what we were doing, but mm-hmm. we were playing shows. And because all of a sudden we had an album out and we were on Epitaph, then people wanted to see us and it was just much easier to get shows. So then we got a tour manager and he kind of booked us a tour in Germany. And this tour to Germany kind of started going to France or to Austria, Switzerland. So it's almost like a European tour. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, I think we did like twice or a couple of times like tours where we played like 30 to 45 dates in a row every single day. Every day, a show. Sometimes there's like five person. Sometimes there's like 200 and it's a a mega party. And we had a lot of fun. Even when there was only five people, we play full on and party with these five people. And then most of the shows were in Germany and the money wasn't great or money was (laughs) almost inexistent. But there was always a lot of beers. So we had, (laughs) it was five people in the room and really like, yeah, you want a beer? I mean, we have four cases of beer and we're like you know six people so you know they we just like hung out with these people and danced and and partied yeah and we did that a lot you know we did it for five years Mm -hmm. and it was yeah it was an amazing experience and i think at the end we split because we just too set on trying to make a living and it's still punk rock and 
I think the living could have happened maybe little by little, but not like, okay, now we decide to make a living. So we'd be like, oh, we don't come to play there because because like we're asking this amount and then people are like, whoa, that's too much. And so then we don't play. I was like, I think we, in the end, we always played, you know, but we were kind of just trying too hard. Yeah. And then there were like some really bad disputes in between some bad members. And then we just... Most of the people in the band decided to split and we were supposed to do a second album. So we recorded a second album in a small studio to just listen to those songs and share. But we just um, we just preferred to split versus like keep keep on trying because we could have recorded this album and then, you know, pursue uh, this thing. But the guys were like, oh, we'll just do another band. And somehow nobody really did much more music. And okay. for me, it was a great reason to to leave to Barcelona. Because at the same time I was doing the band, I stopped university and then I was, I think this is an interesting t- t- story because this is, this is how I kind of became a guy who skates, but also a guy who works. Mm-hmm. I was never only skateboarding. I always did like multiple things. And so I quit uni and I just kind of won the Belgium championship. So as the, the street, I won street at this random contest from, I don't know who organized a really shitty contest with like plastic obstacles <laughs> and whatever I won was like products from like seven years ago, like really old school <laughs> board. And I, I couldn't do anything with any of the things I won. I could not even go trade it at the skate shop, you know, it was just so bad. <laughs> okay. So as uh, complaining to Jacques Dutch, again, you know, from Transwind, uh, the distributor is like the V7 in France or yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. Urban Supplies in Germany, etc. You know, sure. And he was he was so cool. He was just like listening to me complain about being the Belgium champion, which is kind of a joke, you know. <laughs> I was just complaining. And then he just told me, hey, if you're not happy about this, just do something about this. And then I told him, yeah, but I don't want to organize a contest. I just want to go and skate, you know. And he's like, yeah, well, then don't complain about it because that's this is how it's going to be, you know, unless you make changes. And then I thought about it and and then he told me, hey, you can come and, you know, kind of work from our offices and then just organize cool events, you know, like and make it like something you think is good. Mm -hmm. And I took his uh, I took his word and I did it. Mm-hmm. So then I organized these Belgium championships and kind of invented concepts like skaters vote. So basically the skaters would vote for each other during a session and you would just, you know, all the, the sheets would be quite visible. So you were not supposed to just vote for your friends because then or else the speaker would call you out. Hey, the guys from this city only voted for their own city. Lame. And then, you know, kind of throw it. <laughs> it wasn't too serious. Okay. And so people played the game and just like, okay, this person ripped tonight on, you know, spot number one and so on and so forth. And we did these evenings and just like listening to music and skating, like free sessions. Mm-hmm. And then in the end, it was like this big final, like the Belgium championships thing. And I managed to get like sponsors like Pepsi or Eastpac. And I even got like uh, NRG Radio, Energy. In yeah, yeah, yeah. And we created some spots, you know, some jingles like, yeah, come to the Belgium championships, uh, you know, Sunday. <laughs> it was the element team who would also come and skate at the championship. It was like a big deal. It was, I even like made like some, some kind of bullshit story in between the skate park of Brussels and Antwerp and told them, hey, I'll go do the event at the place that renovates fully the street course. And then they were just like feeling so much pressure that I managed to get the whole street street course renovated. And that was super dope because we were skating there, you know, almost every day. So it was like really for our own interest in a way too. And the owner, yeah, they weren't skaters, but they just were interested in like, you know, this kind of title. Ooh, Belgium mm-hmm. Championships. Whoa. Something. Yeah. 
And so we did that and it was great. And then the big finals arrived and, you know, national TV and stuff. And my parents were there and I was running around organizing this whole thing. And all of a sudden they called my name and it's time to skate. And then I skated and I managed to go to the finals. And then in the finals, I, I don't know, I, I put the chip on, I guess. And I, I was on fire and I didn't miss anything. And I did tricks I've never done in my life in that skate park. Wow. And I won. <laughs> I won my own contest. So yeah. that was kind of funny because uh, the people who were there, they're like, whoa, okay, no problems, you won, you know, it's obvious. But then, you know, skateboarding likes to talk shit. So then in, in yeah. the end, Belgium start to talk talk shit on this. And it was like, uh, it was it was a real bummer because I did it with so much love. Mm. But then it's funny, you know, it's my contest. <laughs> and so people don't know, you know, I, I, I mean, it was my... All the guys judging would be my friends or not, but I'd even pay them to judge, yeah. you know? So people were just like, ah, this is not... And of course, it's <laughs> not really okay, but I guess I just needed to do that thing. And so the second year is another Belgium Championship Series, but it didn't enter, and then it wasn't fun. Then I was like, you know, why am I even doing this? And then the third year was a big European Championships. Uh-huh. And with the European Championships, it was called the S Master, and we got the the S Manic Mati video premiere, uh, like oh, a yeah, European yeah. premiere. I organized a huge party and had bands, and and I was also organizing the whole contest. And I guess maybe that was like almost close to a burnout because I did everything myself, you know. And it was like I don't know two two thousand people audience, and wow. every skater from Europe would come. Like Pontus was there. Bastien Salabanzi won, you know, and I told him, yeah, hey, it's yeah, 2,000 yeah. euro, 2,000 euro prize money. I was so proud. And he's like, what? Only? And I was like, <laughs> oh, shit, it's not enough, you know. And wow. I don't know. And basically, we split the band just right then when I was working too much, doing all this stuff. There was even okay. like some, some politics starting to be involved because Transin did distribute Soltec and S and it was sponsored by S. It was called the S Masters. But there was like a distributor in Holland who wanted to have Soltec for the Benelux. So for Holland, Belgium and Luxembourg. And so crazy politics where I had like my friend Alexi, Alexi van den Plas, who did a really cool skate magazine in Belgium called Flatspot. He would like like just stick posters all over towns for days to have like audience come for the, the event, you know. And this guy found posters and just put a sticker cancelled on our poster just to pretend it's not going to happen because there's all this beef. <laughs> and he created a, a rumor there was asbestos in the hole. So I had to get like specialists to test the air and mm. see that it was fine, but it cost like 500 euros. And I was like... I really didn't understand back then how can another skater just want to kind of kill my event. But it was more mm. like politics with the, the shoe distribution stuff and stuff that was, it was not in my control. But it was great yeah. because all this pressure, all this, this stuff, you know, I organized all this stuff and it worked. Mm -hmm. I like to say nobody died, you know. I was like, okay, yeah, cool. yeah, it just happened. Mm -hmm. But I was, uh, I was like, okay, actually now, did I enjoy this? Not so much. And then I moved to Barcelona. So, so what, what, what year is that? Mm, 2000 or 2001. Okay. Yeah, probably 2001. So Antis uh, hasn't started yet, right? Exactly. Okay. I'm on Consolidated and I go to Barcelona and there I was like so happy to be in the sun that mm -hmm. I really, I don't know, I was feeling it and I, I was skating with the Spanish guys and I learned Spanish and I was just really happy there. And I managed to do like a couple really good tricks and kind of first time on a couple of spots. And it really kind of 
propulsed me, I guess, a bit. Started having interviews mm -hmm. in like a Spanish mag or a French mag and kind of being all over the place. And so that was, it was just really cool, you know? So yeah. I think from that, that moment and hanging out more with Hugo, we maybe that summer after the Barcelona time, we decided to start Antis. Okay. How did you meet with uh, Hugo, actually? Uh, did you meet in Barcelona or in Belgium or in Lyon? Or, because I, I think he's from Lyon, isn't he? He's from uh, Tonon, uh, Evian, and he now lives in Evian. He's so cool. He built, okay. he built a house with his own hands. He got some, some maps and some how-to from the internet and just took the time to build a, a house. He bought land and just built his house from the ground up alone. Like He's pretty gnarly. So wow. yeah, Hugo's a, really a, a boss. I, I love him. <laughs> I think uh, with Hugo, we met through Carhartt. I think this is an interesting side story. Uh, went to the Gliss Expo contest like in the 90s, end of the 90s. Mm -hmm. And it was one at the Disney, Euro Disney Paris. And it was a random, I don't know why it was there, but it was a, basically like a little trade show for skateboarding and surf and snow. And it was the skate contest. And the skate contest was really cool. Tom Penny, mm -hmm. Chris Markovich, Rick McCrank were there. And it was like a really cool contest. Tony Hawk was there too on the vert. And nice. so we skated, mm -hmm. skated the contest. And all of a sudden, this lady comes to me like, hey, do you like to skate for Carhartt? And I was like, I don't know. And I met Hugo maybe for the second time at that contest, but he was already skating for Carhartt. So she was kind of like, yeah, Hugo's on. And then maybe David Coolio was also on back then. Not completely oh, yeah. sure. Mm -hmm. Maybe he came a bit later. Sorry, David, I can't remember that. But so she was <laughs> trying to convince me to skate for Carhartt. And Carhartt back then, for a lot of us, was like, Ooh, I don't know. It was a little bit of a, it just wasn't my thing, I guess. It was like a little more gangster type of clothing. Okay. Super hip hop. And I was like punk rock. And also, it was really not skateboarding. So it was like, oh, fuck, mm -hmm. this Volcom. Like even Quicksilver would have been better, you know? And it's so yeah. funny to say that today because, you know, Carhartt <laughs> yeah. is... Cards the shit, but yeah. Um, <laughs> so I was kind of like, mm, but I was also playing tough and I was trying to get my friends on. So then I was like, I'll go, but maybe we need like travel budget and I need to put like two more Belgium guys. And so that was Hans Klassens and Jeffrey Vanov. Oh, yeah. And the lady was really cool, Barbara. She, she accepted and she didn't skate. So she kind of took my word for it. So from the, the moment I started skating for Carhartt, I was kind of like the team manager Belgium. And it was That's right, insane yeah. days. Carhartt was like, okay, you have travel budget, but didn't say how much. So mm -hmm. I just go, I would go to every contest, everything going on in Holland, Germany, or France, mm -hmm. take my car, just pay for the gasoline. We'd stay in like a really cheap hostel. We eat like, you know, supermarket bread and cheese or falafels on the cheap. And we went everywhere. And every week I would send an envelope full of my bills Just the tickets. I would not even do an accounting on a paper. <laughs> and I just sell, send my tickets and kind of know, okay, this, this amount before the euro. So in all different currencies, you know. And then yeah. uh, accounting would just send me back the money by magic. Every week, the week after, <laughs> I just get the money back. And so I did that for years. And yeah, Carhartt, like, hook it up, like, incredibly. Like, uh, definitely yeah. one of my best sponsors because it's still, like, a family business today. The guy who owns it, Edwin, is, like, genuine, you know, and he cares about all the people. 
And yeah, that was an amazing experience because from like a, a clothing brand, you're like, hmm, not so sure. It yeah. started becoming amazing. And then there's this guy called Lars Greve who started like being the, the marketing guy for it. I mean, he started like packing the boxes and he was the skater. So he'd be like, okay, yeah, those pants, please. You know, and, and then all of a sudden he kind of moved up and he was the guy. Mm -hmm. So then eventually, yeah, the chronology is like, we started doing like really cool trips. Like we could kind of do anything so we went to mongolia for a month yeah that's right and uh but that that was a little bit later wasn't it i think in 2004 or around there yeah 2004 so after a couple of years i think for the first couple of years it was like just that you know kind of going left and right and then all of a sudden i was in barcelona mm -hmm. so i was in barcelona so i became the, the spanish tm so i started like uh, getting some spanish guys on cohort we got like danny lebron back in the day oh yeah But then he quit, and we got Julian Fornes, and <laughs> oh yeah, uh, even Qu Quentin Debris. He was living in Spain. He was also sponsored by Carhartt. Yeah, we put him on. Mm -hmm. So we did trips like going to Costa Rica. We went to Argentina. We went to Argentina for one month and just skate every day and visit a bunch of cities. And mm -hmm. so then the Mongolia trip uh, arrived, and Lars wanted to go to Mongolia because it's so unknown. And there was a photo in a magazine in Kingpin with a whole huge skate park, like a, a skate park that looks like an extreme game skate park. Mm -hmm. And just like looking like impossible to skate. Like why is there a skate park in Ulaanbaatar that looks so badly built with like spine ramps, but three meters high, just the spine up to three meter, you know, uh -huh. and numerous ramps, like maybe 20 huge ramps like this, you know. So Lars and then a bunch of us organized to go to Mongolia and we were there like 15 skaters for a month and created that book and then also like a documentary. Mm -hmm. And I guess I was involved in all these things, but basically without even getting a title. I was a producer all my life, just <laughs> making shit happen. Yeah. But back then we didn't really care. We just did stuff and it, we just loved doing that stuff. So we just do it no matter what. Like the aunties videos, you know, we're just like, oh, let's just go on this idea and then just have fun with it and, yeah. and then create skits and things like that. We did with uh, Paul Labadie, you know, he was like definitely the mastermind behind it. But then we all like put some energy and put some ideas into that and, you know, skate Europe most of the time, skate everywhere. Mm -hmm. So, so the, you were living in Barcelona uh, and you started Antis while you were in, in Barcelona? Yeah. But uh, I understand that it was based in Lyon, though, right? So did you go back and forth a lot or, or were the, the other guys kind of handling it from over there and you were doing your, your thing in Barcelona? Or how did, uh, how did the, the beginning of Antis uh, happen, basically? I think it happened gradually. But yes, I was in Barcelona and we were skating a lot and a lot of people would come to Barcelona and stay at my place or other places and just skate a bunch. And uh, because I was the Belgium guy and not a French guy, everybody else was French on Antilles. I was really adamant on let's not make it a French speaking company, but like a, a European company. And we we're also very inspired by cliché. So my role was really to, you know, kind of, I found a lot of the writers because I just knew them. Mm -hmm. And also I was the guy kind of international sales distribution also because I was traveled in a way 
maybe a bit more than the other guys and stuff and my English was good and I could speak Spanish also by then mm -hmm. I was like okay you know looking for distributors for the brand and it was it was slow at the beginning you know we weren't working like you know full time and I think in a way it was like a really nice way to do things we were doing our own skate brand but we would skate a lot and that's why I was giving props to Loic before because he really hold the fort down you know He was at the, yeah, yeah. at the office. We had this small office and he was, you know, selling the boards and shipping the boards, you know. And on my side, it's it's a different thing. It's like, okay, you're doing marketing and you're choosing the best writers or also got uh, Polo Labadie involved with Antis and he made the first video and all the the next ones. But by finding Polo Labadie, it, it was changing everything because he's so talented that he made Antis cool and he knew about music and he put the best songs and he made us look amazing. Yes. <laughs> I don't think we were ever the best skaters, but yeah, we love skating and we love skating different spots and we really love traveling as well and meeting people. So all this was genuine and Polo could make it, you know, you could feel it. And oh, people, for sure. Yeah. So people enjoyed the vibe and then, yeah, we had like so much fun and then gradually it was like, okay, more work, more work. And at some point I was going one week per month in Lyon to work with the guys at the office. Yeah. But it was not, it was tiring as well. And I would sleep on top of the office or sometimes I'd sleep at uh, Julien and Polo's apartment. They had their own uh, flat not far, but most of the time I'd sleep at the office and kind of be a little bit alone. Mm -hmm. So maybe it wasn't ideal. And it was this thing of like, am I moving to Lyon to do the brand with them full time or not? But I always... I guess I never could do it, you know. I, I was in Barcelona and I needed that to keep going, I guess. So that was just um, how it was, you know. Mm -hmm. So you turned yourself pro basically on Antis, <laughs> as you said before. Yeah. And, uh, and so you were writing for them and you were the team manager for, for Spain, for uh, Carhartt uh, from Barcelona. You kind of stopped your music career a little, uh, little bit before that or right as uh, everything was falling into place. And so then for the next 10 years after the beginning of Antis, you were a pro skater for them and also like a founder and, and a, an active uh, participant. But you were also doing a lot of other like team management and marketing management uh, things. Uh, you mentioned uh, Carhartt, but I think you had some other, other opportunities, basically. Uh, can you tell me about those, uh, those first few first uh, experiences uh, in uh, like team, team and um, marketing management while you were a pro skater? Yeah, I think... I love skating, but for me, it was enough to skate three or four days a week, mm -hmm. you know, and when I would skate, I'd skate full time or just nonstop and hours. And but then when it is time to, you know, to chill or, you know, people drinking beers at Magba, like that kind of cliche, I was just kind of maybe I was bored by that or maybe I just had the urge of like, oh, no, but I kind of want to do other things and discover the city with other people. So I, I had a flat with like just other type of people, regular people, no, and mm -hmm. speaking Spanish at the flat. And then I had my own flat for most of the time. Actually, I came with my uh, Belgium girlfriend back in the day. Mm -hmm. And I think for, for all those years, in a way, I was just a freelancer or an entrepreneur. I was a gun to hire. So, yeah. so people would hire me to do an event or to do some consulting. And I, I think most of the stuff I've done were maybe after Antis, but it just started this way of like, oh, I can do Antis, I can do Kahart, I can be a pro skater. In a way, to be a pro skater in those days, let's say from 2000 to 2010, it's an era where you could be a pro skater and pay your bills, but unless you'd like really do the move to the US, 
or be a quite a famous pro you could just pay your bills and you know make an okay living so for me i saw that so so clearly that i just needed to work and do like marketing and tm job for carhartt uh-huh. and others so it's just something i had clearly in my mind and then at the same time i was like even interested in like oh i'm taking acting classes now and yeah i wanted to ask you about that as well yeah yeah so yeah i just needed to express myself i think uh only i mean i've kind of been obsessed only with skating and i didn't know much in in life in general so i think i needed to open my mind to just something i don't know and the world of acting was really interesting to me so i did these classes and then i was in some plays in english some comedy some some uh, comedy de l'humour noir how do you say de l'humour noir like dark humor you know yeah i guess so yeah probably Just things where, like, I was, I was this character that was awful to its wife and insulting her all day, but mm-hmm. insulting her so meanly and so bad that people would laugh. Mm-hmm. So it was really interesting to be in a comedy and then make an audience laugh. And then as you repeat and do it every week, you become a little better and then kind of noti- noticing nuances. And then you can really kind of believe in that character and you know be in that character and stuff and it was right. it was just very interesting for maybe uh, self-exploration it was really hard honestly to be a good actor is so difficult i mm-hmm. dabbled in it and i never really felt it like oh i got this you know it's just it's so much work and you have to put yourself out there and yeah and there's yeah. many things I, i don't think i would have dared i mean our teacher would say hey now talk with this you know your partner say the lines and at the end You have to look at each other and look like you're in love, you know, and it's really hard to do, you know, like to really oh, yeah, love you, sure. you know, this stranger, this person, maybe you don't, you don't even like that person, but you have to make everybody believe. So yeah. I think it helped me to, to become just more interested in more people in life and just not be so stuck in skateboarding. Yeah, I think, uh, well, I, I don't know. I've never been a pro skater, so I can't uh, speak of experience, but uh I don't feel like there's many pro skaters like yourself who have had so many other interests and so many other things going for themselves, you know, outside of skateboarding while they were pro skaters. It seems like they, for however long their careers might have been, they would focus on the skating and, you know, try to get coverage, try to film video parts, get interviews in magazines. And then once they're done, they just, you know, uh, move on to something else. But it seems like you, uh, all along, you've always been busy with uh, many different things. And uh, I don't feel like that's, uh, that everybody does that, basically. Do you feel like, uh, like you're, you were kind of the odd person in this uh, little uh, bubble of skateboarding? Or, or do, do you feel like uh, other people were kind of uh, following that path of yours? Or? I didn't really think so much about it. I, I know, in retrospect, that some people would just kind of make a bit of fun about, oh, and Julian is an actor now, or, you know, instead mm-hmm. of being like, yeah. yeah, fuck yeah, you can be an actor, you know, like, this would be more today, you know, today people are like, ah, oh, you can do, you can do it, you know, right, but yeah, people were like dissing and stuff, but it's, I guess I didn't really mind from, I think I just maybe also didn't have the courage to only skateboard and push it like me, 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 and Because the thing is, skateboarding is so much about confidence. And if you push your confidence to the next level, then you can 50 anything, whether 12 stair or 50 stair, you know, sure. if you're 100% confident, it's the same thing and you stay on it. And then, of course, at the end, you have to take the impact and, you know, kind of have that experience. But mm-hmm. 
maybe my confidence didn't grow that much at some point where I was like, okay, I just need to to do all these other things to explore because I could I could tell, you know, I'm not going to be the best skateboarder and a famous or, a, you know, making tons of money and stuff. So I was just like, ah, oh, this is not happening for me right now. And I, I really, oh, I mean, from 20 years old, I was organizing big championships by myself. Yeah. So it was just this thing of like, well, actually, I'm I'm really good at all these other things too. I know how to do it. If I put my mind on something, I can do it. But it was like, yeah, I'm kind of juggling a lot of things. I think my inspiration came from from like uh, skaters and people who did art. I was I was quite influenced by Thomas Campbell. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's an amazing artist, skateboarder who kind of went from being the photographer at Transworld to being an artist to filming skateboarding, f- filming surfing, and then all of a sudden having like solo exhibits and being a legit artist. Yeah. I met Thomas Campbell through Benjamin Debert. He oh, kind of yeah. just like, yeah, I was going to Australia and Benjamin's like, yeah, no way. Thomas is in Australia. You should meet him. And that's so cool from Benjamin, you know, is like, what? I'm going to meet Thomas. That's insane. And intimidating, I'm sure. Yeah, it, it was a bit scary, but he was so nice. He picked me up at the bus and then we ate food and he was painting and it was really chill. And then I was like kind of trying to be artistic and draw into my little notebook, but I can't draw for shit. <laughs> but I was just like, wow, you know, I'm here. And, and Thomas took me surfing like that that next day. He took me surfing from mm-hmm. seven in the morning, which is kind of hard for like a skater guy at my age, at that <laughs> age the 10, you know, I was like, what? Why are we waking at seven? Yeah. Right? Why don't we go surfing at 10 or 11? But seven was the time. And we hit up the first beach and I see the waves. I could surf a bit, you know, like holiday surfer style. Yeah. yeah. And Thomas just like, no, it's not good enough. So we go to a second beach, but kind of 15 minutes away in the Jeep. Like it's like a rough, rough drive. Second beach, not good enough. And then the third one. And it's just magic, like nobody and just waves that just like pull and are like easygoing and and so we went in there. He lent me a longboard. He catched the first wave. I see him go. And then I see the wave come for me. And I, I'm on it. Mm-hmm. I start surfing. And then I had this moment that clicked in my head. Like, oh, my God. I was just hearing my board glide the water. And, you know. Mm. And I could see just palm trees, desert beach, and just Thomas, like, a further away. And we both rode that wave for a minute or something. And that's the awesome. best wave I ever catch. And I could never find a wave like this. So obviously you meet Thomas Campbell and then you never forget, you know, he, he lived this moment or so probably shared that moment a thousand times with more people. And how amazing is that? No, like oh, I for remember sure, yeah. forever, but he would never know. <laughs> and then he was like, yeah, I'm prepping this expo in New York and I'm going to sell these paintings for, you know, this amount of thousands of dollars. And I was like, what like people gonna buy this for this amount and like i was just like it's incredible and so yeah i guess i just yeah that's why i started skate brand also i guess it was just like i need to to learn to do stuff you know and learning learning by doing (laughs) oh for sure yeah that you're a great demonstration of that for sure So, so eventually you decided to 
to leave Antis and as a pro skater at least. Uh, so in the early 2010s, so around 2012 or something like that. And so, what made you take the decision to make the decision to leave Antis? Uh, did you just kind of run out of time to be an active pro skater as you used to, or uh, what, what made you decide to uh, to retire from pro skateboarding, basically? So yeah, with uh, with Antis and. And then how it came to an end. I think it, it's just more like a chronology. We've been doing Antis for a while and it's getting better and better. In uh, 2007, my son is born. So I'm a father. And uh, with Lou, my partner, my wife, we decide to move to Berlin. So Lou got a job opportunity to be uh, the director of an art gallery. And we mm -hmm. were in Barcelona and our kid was one year old, so just a baby. And we were just like, ah, maybe it's time to do the move. You know, I was like in Barcelona eight years. Uh, Lou was there for six. Okay. And we we're kind of ready to go. So we just jumped on this opportunity and moved to Berlin like this, you know, like pretty quickly and start doing Antis from Berlin. But yeah, Berlin has a harsh season, you know, it's like definitely Siberia here in the winter. <laughs> like currently yeah. today, it's been raining crazy. And now I just see that it's a blue sky and some sun, but it's still like pretty freezing, like almost freezing. It's like two degrees. But um, yeah, so we, we moved to Berlin and all of a sudden I re realized I had to adjust With aunties, we're four owners, and it was not so easy to make a living. And now I'm a dad, and I can see, okay, I'm a dad, I'm 30 years old, or 31, the time I'm in Berlin, and it's kind of like, how do we do this, you know? So I think with uh, the realization that, you know, just doing aunties and the four of us making a living to really only do aunties, it wasn't easy. So sure. I think it just dawned on me, like, okay, I just need to get a job, you know? Mm-hmm. So then I was from Berlin. I started doing like a couple different things. I had like so many different jobs. But one that was interesting was like with Converse, there was an opening. So I set up Converse Spain. I uh, hired a team manager. Together we hired a team, like the best Spanish skaters. Then we opened like the doors of like, you know, the best stores for Converse, like 20 stores. And we had a whole marketing campaign going on and then a video series and then ads and just this whole thing. And so in six months, I set up Converse Spain and I was like quite in touch with, you know, the Converse people in Holland, which kind of take care of Europe. And I was kind of, oh, cool, you know, I'm really hoping I'm going to be the Converse marketing guy for Europe, you know. But then yeah, all of a sudden, yeah. the woman who is maybe going to hire me, she switched to Nike. And then nobody knew me at Converse and she was kind of gone. Okay, I see. And then th that was it, you know. So there was a couple times where you're kind of working on your timing and then it's like, okay, am I going to get this job or not, you know. Mm -hmm. I was also in touch with Jamie Thomas and we were talking about Uh, doing black box Europe and I would be a brand manager for all the the brands in Europe you know so zero mystery and fallen yeah at yeah. the time of uh, fallen was quite big and basically I went to meet uh, all the black box employees and Jamie like introduced me to every single person there you know for like hours I shook the hand of 140 people but it was at <laughs> the same time the cry the the crisis you know the crisis happened yeah 2008 around there yeah 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 2008. So I came uh, right after I came the next year because he couldn't hire me. It was kind of going down. And the next year was only 70 people working there. Oh, damn. So that, that didn't work out either. Okay. And at the same time, we're trying to figure out how to, you know, to make aunties, you know, go and, and that it happens. And I think it was just uh, 
at a moment of time in a way to move on. So in the end, what I did get as a job was uh, Ruka, RVCA, this brand mm -hmm. from the States that is like around surf and skating and also doing the ANP program and like sponsoring a bunch of artists. Mm -hmm. So I was working with Ruka and I was kind of leading the marketing initiatives. I was kind of freelance based from Berlin. It was, it was a cool job. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I was doing antis and was kind of juggling a lot. And, and this Ruka job was like kind of full-time job, even if it was freelance. So I think I just, uh, yeah, the guys were also like, you know, come on, man, do your part, you know, like you should, you know, do more with antis. And so there was like a little pressure there. So in 2010 or 11, we started discussing, okay, but what are we going to do? You know, like, are you moving to Lyon or what's going to happen? Mm -hmm. And I think, uh, I mean, the, the story would be, I said, okay, I'll move to Lyon, but I want to be, then I want to be kind of the, the boss in a way. I, this is what I said, you know, and the guys didn't want to, I understand, you know, they didn't want to do this. They wanted that we all equal and that we keep on doing antis the way we want to do it. Okay. But to me, it was too much of a commitment to, to move to Lyon with my family and do it the same way we do it because it was maybe it was too slow for me and I wanted to do some moves. I had a bunch of ideas and mm -hmm. I think it's just like a natural way of like, oh, actually, it's just better. It's better to not do this. So then I was like, okay, but then I prefer to pull out. So then I was like, okay, I'm just going to sell, sell my part of the company And then soon enough, I was like, ah, actually, you know, I'm not a pro skater anymore. You know, I'm not paid. Why should I have a board? And I prefer to just kind of retire officially. So then I had a, this small video part, yeah. retiring. Mm. And I had the best board I ever had. My last board was uh, designed by Stefan Marx, an artist from yeah. Hamburg. And it says the end of the beginning, you know, 2012. So this is 10 years ago. And I wanted to write the end of the beginning because to me it was like, cool, I'm going to really start a new chapter. And I just didn't want to, I didn't want to be prolonging this skate career because I, you know, even saying career, that sounds weird to me. It was never a career. Yeah. You know? It was really like a, li a life of skateboarding, but I was not a pro anymore. And it was, it was the same with, uh, I was skating for America. Oh yeah. Yeah. And I was paid mm -hmm. and I was on the European team and it was, it was just really amazing. But at some point, yeah, they had to pay the younger guys and the younger guys was Enis Fazlioff and Rob Matman. Oh and they yeah. Were like yeah. The incredible young guys coming up and they needed the money, you know, and somehow my salary, which wasn't very much. But it was split in two to start paying these two guys. And I was like, okay, you, know, you can't argue with that. You know, you can't be like, oh, no, you have to pay me. Yeah. And yeah, these yeah, guys yeah. will go somewhere else. You know, it was like, it was hard to admit, you know, to, to have the life of a pro skater is so much fun and there's so much freedom. It's hard to, to let that go. But at the same time, uh, I had to admit it was my time and I, I will still skate, but I don't need to be a pro. Mm -hmm. And I have my name on a board felt maybe bizarre. So in the end, I really turned the page on Antis and, and then did the move, you know? Yeah. You just mentioned Anise and uh, Rob Matman. Uh, they're both uh, still incredible skateboarders today. Was Pontus actually on America as well at, at that time? Or I think he was, he had like a short stint over there or maybe it was a longer period of time. I don't remember. He was there a while. He was, I helped uh, put him on. So we went skating and stuff, and, and I introduced him to Oli Bergen, who was the TN doing all the Soltec brands back then. But, you know, Pontus right, yeah. won that contest. So Pontus, he's such a beast. He moved from the U.S. back to Europe, 
And then mm-hmm. he was like, with no sponsors, he quit everything. So he was like, I need sponsors, you know? So he okay. just won the contest. Like he just, oh, I'm winning this thing. So then I'll find sponsors. So so he just kind of did all this, uh, this stuff by himself. And he skated for America, I don't know, a while until he went to Converse. Maybe he went to Converse when he did all the his own videos, you know, in search for the miraculous and stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Pontus, interesting character. I love uh, to see what skateboarders can do, you know, like what he what he managed to do with Polar and now he has a shoe brand and stuff. It's it's incredible to see what sk- skaters can do, you know, when, when you're kind of having a mind to it. Exactly, yeah. You know, out of nothing, you really, I mean, you know, daring to do a shoe brand and... Especially nowadays, like uh, in this shoe market, now now it's uh, it's a really a bold move, I think. Because uh, like maybe 10 years or 15 years ago, uh, skater-owned shoe brands were bigger players. Like Nike, Adidas were kind of starting to get their foot in the door. Uh, but nowadays, they own the market, basically. Nike, Adidas, Converse, New Balance. So to uh, to come in and say, I'm going to start a sh- uh, like a, a skater-owned shoe brand from Portugal and stuff, it's really quite, uh, how do you say, audacious or like bold yeah um yeah yeah, it's ballsy but i think to make a shoe brand anytime is difficult there was a bunch of skate shoe shoe brands all along the way and so many went out of business and then obviously you know brands like soltec and you know the original skate shoe vans you know they're they're there thank god all these guys are there and i think uh pontus is just uh entering the way he knows and the way he wants but he's smart and he does a the product looks nice, you know, people like those shoes. Yeah. And so hopefully it's it's going to grow little by little and kind of establish itself to be maybe the next one, you know? So who knows? You yeah, know? yeah. I, I, I wish him the best uh, for sure. He's uh, hopefully he has as much success with that brand as he did with uh, Polar. So we'll see how it uh, evolves. But uh... all right. So so we covered uh, most of your career up to Antilles and, and your and your pro skater period. And so you told me you, you went to Berlin and uh, settled down there and started working freelance for uh, Ruka, if I'm not mistaken. And so, yeah, t- guide me through the, the following experiences uh, that brought you to creating your own creative studios in the end. Uh, but uh, yeah, how, how did that happen? That transition from ending your pro skater career to owning your creative uh, studio? So, yeah, it was, um, I think I just needed to work, you know, uh, the skating, the pro skating, you know, career was done. And then, yeah, I had to hustle quite hard to get jobs. My timing was just never right. I explained the, I tried with Converse. There was this thing with Black Box and Zero and all these other brands fallen. Mm-hmm. And it just didn't click. And so then I got this job with Ruka, but it wasn't really enough. It was, um, I don't know, they don't, didn't pay good. And it was not so easy to, to deal with, let's say, the mother brand, Billabong, who would, you know, pay people late. And just it was just difficult to run a tight ship, you know. You'd be getting really good writers on Ruka and trying to get them on better salaries. And I would just, I don't know, I had these ideas to do this and that, but it was kind of blocking all the time and didn't really have so much liberty, you know. And it had to be validated by someone the marketing budgets were not not big at all actually Mm -hmm. and so 
I think I became frustrated, you know, like to kind of work for other people who had the last say. And because, of course, I had all this freedom all the years before, you know, skateboarding or doing antis or even with Carhartt. It was like with Carhartt, all the projects we did, it was always like, okay, what are we doing together? Or it was like a, a lot of listening and people were letting us do what we thought would be really cool for the brand. Mm -hmm. And so all this trust was, was quite amazing. So then all of a sudden, you're kind of feeling more like scrutinized and you don't have so much means anyway so it wasn't just amazing i guess it was a uh, it was like okay i have this job now you know and i was grateful to have a job but at the same time i was looking for other stuff you know and so i i did also other multitasking jobs so i i was uh, working also with the bright trade show here in berlin okay. which was a cool experience i organized like i organized two years in a row this uh called the bright awards they were the european skate awards Every year, you know, you would have your European skater of the year, but also the skate brand mm -hmm. of the year. And so when I, I got the job, I was like, okay, we need a European skater, you know, woman of the year or else I, I can't do this. And I had to argue with the guys. I don't know which year was this. Maybe 2012. Okay. So 10 years ago, 2013, you know, I was like, yeah, we need also a woman European skater of the year. And they were like, why? No, it's <laughs> too many. So I forced them. And it happened, you know, and so that was a cool experience, you know, working with Bright and organizing events again. It was a, we had like this bowl event into this like techno club in a garden in Berlin and in the chalet. It was amazing. Just this incredible bowl. Had a Dan van der Linden show up and a bunch of other pros and, and yeah, everybody killed it. It was a contest. It was called the non-serious bowl competition. <laughs> and so it was non-serious because we were just like, we need to have fun with a skate competition and people could win a bicycle for this best trick. They could win a vinyl player with like 10 classic vinyls. They won like a super good uh, digital camera. Uh, there was a Fender guitar, cool. all these really cool gifts. And, and then, f you know, fun best tricks. There was like a, the highest air contest, but you had to ring the bell doing the high air or else it doesn't count. That sounds uh, difficult, yeah. <laughs> but it was just fun. It was like a old school skateboard from the 80s, like super heavy board. And that's the best trick. What can you do with that? Or okay, um, okay. just all these, you know, you had to like, you know, drink beers and skate and things that wouldn't really encourage today to, to get people to drink. Yeah. <laughs> thinking twice about these things nowadays but um it was really fun it was like before before like all the the dime challenge contest and it was like that's what it uh, made me think of yeah for sure it happened just after and so i think it was in the air people wanted to not have such serious competitions and yeah i, I mean i i love skateboarding i'm down for all of it you know like people like this thing on the olympics or in street league or this and that mm. but to me it's super interesting to see that There's all kind of skateboarders, you know, and I can get along with most of them and maybe some a little bit less, you know, people who love to train their tricks and practice a trick at the skate park. And then when they really have it dialed, they go to the street and film the exact same trick is like, it's impressive to see, you know, like they can kick flip front crooks every try. But it's not my favorite thing. I prefer like spontaneous people. I really like people who can skate everything and improvise. Yeah, yeah. And then yeah. maybe nowadays what I like the best is to see kids that are not so comfortable, that are just not in their elements, but then all of a sudden they're going to get the first 180 ever. Or mm -hmm. I love to see girls crew uh, skating together and how they encourage each other and how hyped they are versus 
better skaters that like boom boom can do everything i don't smile this is normal you know yeah yeah yeah. i've been through so many decades of skateboarding that now i i really get the joy out of like somebody like getting their first ollie and so every time i go skate i'm trying to say hi to these kids and and just make sure they they feel good and so they feel welcomed and stuff so yeah maybe that's just a, a little side passage but yeah I was working a bunch i also worked in production like i learned how to produce on a mass scale uh, even worked with pontus and polar for a little a tiny little bit oh, okay before he went on his own ship he was like working with uh, this company called mdcn and richie and i was becoming all of a sudden the product person so i set up like a lot of like brands european brands with like their shapes and then a new manufacturer and just kind of working on getting them good products you know good skate products and then on the side i even had to do like longboard brands and truck brands and i learned a lot about product in general because a longboard is just much more complicated yeah with flex and equipment versus the the skateboards this is a bit of a classic recipe you know sure yeah so i did that it was interesting and i learned to manage like bigger budgets and then i was like huh when am i going to do my next thing or and so lou my wife my partner she was like maybe you should be working in advertising and filmmaking you're a producer and when she said that i was like what? I'm not a producer. Like that's for the movies, you know, producer. Or, yeah. And then also advertising. I don't like advertising, you know, cause I'm thinking of like, Ooh, buy this shampoo, you know, TV ad, mm-hmm. but she was so smart and you know, she could foresee potential. And so, yeah, basically she introduced this idea in my head mm-hmm. and then I started like trying to put pieces together. And so the idea was to create a studio, an agency that would represent all the best talents and the best artists coming from skating Mm -hmm. and then kind of making them work in advertising or like in commercial work and perhaps also in documentary work, but not in per se skateboarding jobs because the people that we got involved were people like Thomas Campbell, like Fred Mortain, like Mm -hmm. Russell Houghton, like Sam Rubio, all these people that have met along the ways. And people to us that have this amazing potential to do amazing work and not just for skateboarding is what we thought, you know, just so it was called Blam Studio and mm-hmm. I did it with another person and we started kind of like out of nowhere and with no means, you know, and we didn't really have, I mean, I had like films to show or commercials to show, but kind of stuff that I've done in skateboarding, but it was only skateboarding stuff. Okay. And so this was a really slow start, but at the same time, all of a sudden, there's a new brand manager that comes in at Ruka, mm-hmm. and he just kicked me out of that job. You know, he just like, oh, why are you in Berlin? Like, boom. And he just like kicked me in yeah. a pretty rough way because I was doing actually quite some some good work. So some people were trying to defend me, but it's just he decided. Okay. And I was I was super pissed. I was really like frustrated. Like I thought it was unfair. So it was hard. But then with Lou, we were talking about, oh, but maybe this is what you should do. So it really pushed me to start my own company. And then the next job fell through with the production. And then I had kind of nothing. So all of a sudden I was like, okay, well, I have to do this now because there's nothing else, you know? Yeah, I don't have a choice anymore. No, it was it was definitely some hustling. But then... I think skateboarders would be impressed to see how much they can do. You know, someone coming from the background of skateboarding and having done team management and marketing and all these things. Well, as a producer, mm-hmm. it's producing. You're producing, 
you're like, okay, these guys are go. I'm gonna go on this trip to, you know, get all this footage, get all these photos, and then you distribute all this stuff, whether now social media, skate videos, and then you know, magazines or not. Mm-hmm. It's what everybody does, no? So I just kind of transpose this into the advertising world, right? And then within not so long, actually, uh, uh, there's a great opportunity coming up because Fred Mortagne needed a production to do a Hermès commercial. So Hermès, the luxury fashion brand, mm-hmm. and he wanted us to produce it. And it was an amazing opportunity and we did it quite well. So then Hermès was super happy about Fred and also about us. So it's just a really nice collaboration this way. And, you know, Fred is a genius. He's so good at putting his ideas into images. And so yeah. Hermes was also really smart, you know, as a fashion brand, they didn't ask some fancy director doing commercials who doesn't know nothing about skateboarding to, to do their commercial. They found Fred, who knows. Mm-hmm. And so there was a, a good balance of it's a fashion commercial with skateboarding, but then the skaters could skate. These two girls from Marseille were really you know, cool to do, you know, to be in this commercial and just play the game. And so the result came out nicely. So then we followed up with like a surf one. And so that was like the chance to work with Thomas Campbell. That's right. Yeah, that's that's the Silk. Uh, I don't remember the title of that one. It's called uh, Silk Silk Waves. Okay. So yeah, Silk Waves was shot in Costa Rica and all the Hermes people from Paris uh, flew in and, you know, were like in a surf house and experienced like a week of surfing, you know, to get those surf shots. And we had like uh, Hermes Silk, like the pattern, like in the surfboard. So shapers uh, in Australia and in uh, USA made these two different surfboards for the two surfers who needed to have their shapers do the board. And so we had you know, these amazing surfboards with Hermes silk inside, uh, wow. surfed in Costa Rica. And, you know, doing this with Thomas was a really cool experience. And interesting enough, at some point, he didn't like a shot, you know, like a shot that the Hermes people wanted to have in the film. Okay. He never talked about it. He never showed it, you know. I admire him a lot because he was like, I'm the director. I think this is a little bit corny. I don't want to have it. And the Hermes people wanted to have it. And so he's just like, okay, well then you can do it. But I, I don't really care about this anymore, you know? And yeah. so he sticked to his guns because he's an artist with a vision. And, you know, in the end, us, we had to also find a compromise of making Hermes uh, happy, you know, that they have a commercial that they like. And they loved it. And so this commercial was all over the US, like on all those websites like Vogue and Vanity Fair and stuff. And so a lot of people saw it. And I think with these Hermes commercials, it kind of made a boom for us with uh, Blam Studio back then, you know, to to kind of be yeah. a little bit on the map. So then so then we've done tons of projects from from working with Nike, Adidas, Leica, Decathlon, mm-hmm. and just learning so much. And so it has been a, an incredible journey to to be a producer and to, yeah, just kind of put yourself into a learning position of like, okay, well, now we need to do this kind of shoot with these kind of actors or talents. And then we have to see how you can actually manage to do this and just make it as cool as possible. Mm-hmm. And so the, the producer role is lots of responsibilities. You know, you're managing the money, talking with the client, hiring everyone, and also kind of, you know, finding the best possible director for this project. So yeah, yeah, yeah. It's this great learning curve to, yeah, to really kind of just be in a different career now, I guess. Mm-hmm. So we did that for five years and then it was like kind of the moment to maybe turn the page and do like new, new moves. Okay. 
And so you started this other studio uh, called Cascade, uh, I think in 2020. Yeah, we started like right when COVID started officially. So it was like amazing uh, how, did, how did that go? Yeah, <laughs> it must have been quite a... Honestly, it's been going amazing. So Cascade is, is uh, Lou and I, and it's been really good because we can be, um, we kind of say culture in action. So it's really to put at the forefront, like some values and things around our culture that are important to us. And we launched in March 2020 when COVID was kind of official, you know, and so we couldn't do a launch party, which we wanted yeah. to. And uh, since then, we still didn't do no launch party because now it's been two years, you know, almost two years. But um, but things have been really good because from the past experiences, a lot of people are still in touch with us. And so we can keep on doing commercial work and advertising work. Mm -hmm. But then there's always commercial work coming in and advertising and things that are quite exciting. Brands coming to us are often sharing our values. And so we get asked to do really cool videos or photo shoots and advertising in general with like brands that we value. Currently working with like a, a bicycle brand called Specialize and we're doing the global campaign. Mm -hmm. And this is also really fun because on, on those ones I've been directing. So I kind of have a new hat and, cool. and being on the creative side of deciding how things might look and working with teams and really not doing this alone, but really working with tons of amazing people. Mm -hmm. And on the other side, we work on our passion projects. So with our passion projects, there may be more longer term. But uh, with Sam Rubio, we worked on the Mark Gonzalez book. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know if you have seen it. It's in numerous shops and museums as well. We saw like a stack of books at the Palais de Tokyo shot by a friend. Awesome. So that's in Paris. And yeah, it makes us really happy because yeah, Mark Gonzalez, I always been personally a, a fan of his skating. Like the video days came out and I really loved the skating. And then somehow with the jazz, he's skating on John Coltrane. That was really difficult for me to appreciate back then when I was like 14 or something. Just the music didn't click, no? Yeah, yeah, I see. And so I watched it like a thousand times, as we did. Mm -hmm. And then at some point I was into jazz, you know, and so I started like getting the vinyls from Coltrane or Miles Davis and then more. And so it really kind of put something into you and then that he had all this freedom and being an artist. And it was really uh, inspiring for so many years. So to work on the book was like really fun. Sam yeah, Rubio sure. had the idea and then just wanted to get some expertise. Uh, Luz coming from making books in Barcelona. When I met her, she was working at a, at a publisher and had made many books. And so she had all that experience. So she found a publisher, one called Rizzoli New York, which is one of the best one, you know, in terms of like art books and photo books. And uh, yeah, so this happened and the book is in the book is in store since last year and it sold out to first edition. So now it's on a second edition. And I guess it's not a one week thing, you know, like on social media, it's going to be sold in stores for 10 years. So that's yeah, really cool. that's amazing. Did you get to meet uh, Mario Gonzalez uh, in this whole process or? Yeah, we went to meet him in New York with Lou and uh, his wife, Tia. Okay. It was really cool. I wanted to, you know, I was hoping we'd go skate with him. Yeah. So yeah. I would just, I would just say like, oh, I'll, I'll skate tomorrow, the Supreme Bowl. And then Mark would be like, oh, I'll come. I'll, I'll come and skate with you. And then I would just kind of look over my shoulder. Is he coming? And then he didn't come. So oh, he didn't? Like, oh, oh, bummer. Mark, no. <laughs> 
Now, it's so funny. He Everybody always mentions in interview that he's really strong. And then what we mostly talked about is like, yeah, how do you feel when you skate? Do you feel strong? And I was like, yeah, I feel pretty good. And yeah, I'm lucky to be still skating. So I'm 45 and I still love skateboarding and I feel pretty good in my body. I still learn tricks and stuff, uh-huh. but I don't do so much fitness stuff. You know, I, uh, I do meditation and some stretching, but not an awful lot. And Mark, Mark last year, he was all like, oh, you have to do fitness and you have to do this. And he was like, giving me advice. <laughs> on how you know to get your body strong and okay that's what everybody mentioned how strong he is and he never gets injured and he can take like really hard slams and get back up and stuff and he's a different generation so he might be 52 now 53 i'm not sure Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but yeah the book is out there and it was a really fun to work on this and then with lou we worked on another project and this is more like a feature film documentary, and that's her film. And this is uh, about um, basically here in Berlin, we have a bunker with an art collection. It's like a five stories bunker from the Second World War. And in there, there's this beautiful contemporary art collection. And so Lou gathered a team and worked with Fred Mortagne as a DOP, you know, as the director of photography. And then there's also Nikki, Nikki Wattel as the cinematographer. And basically, uh-huh. she put this whole team together to do a film about this art collection and the mediators, the guides that are working there and giving tours. And it's really their point of view about art and then also what kind of art they do uh, when they're outside the bunker. And so this film is uh, in the film festivals this year. And okay, we're hoping to, to get some good selections and this and that. And so, yeah, that's like more like a long-term project documentary that we've been working on because... I guess we're going to be keeping on working in between doing this passion work, we call it, and then working in advertising, which is really a nice mix of both worlds, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's the name of that document? Is it, is it a documentary? Can, yeah, I guess so. The movie is not out yet because it's in the film festivals and it's called In the Bunker. In the Bunker, okay. Yeah, I mean, the trailer will come out once we're in the first festival, you know, so I'll keep you posted when it comes out. Yeah, I'd love to see that. That seems, that sounds interesting, for sure. All right, so we're going to wrap this up pretty soon, but uh, maybe to finish with uh, with Cascade, uh, so you just mentioned this uh, documentary project. Uh, are, are there an, are other ongoing projects or projects about to start in the near future? Like, what, what, what's, uh, what's the future looking like for you, uh, you and Lou at, at Cascade? Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of going on. We're, we've been writing quite a bunch. Mm-hmm. So we've been writing some fiction projects and TV series and uh, also been writing for the, the next documentary. And it's going to be a documentary TV series. I uh, can't really tell too much right now, unfortunately. Also, just because it has to, you know, it has to be a lot of work also to make things happen, you know. So sometimes it's better to not speak too soon. But we're definitely working on all these things and it's quite exciting. And then we have some more like uh, commercial jobs coming up with like the bicycle brand specialized and some shoots happening in uh, end of February in the UK. So we're going to be traveling there. Mm-hmm. You know, shooting two commercials and two photo shoot and uh, also having um, underwear brand uh, shoot for also in February sometimes. So, yeah, it's interesting because in advertising, you don't really know what's coming up in six months. You know, it's always kind of every every couple months, there's like a couple jobs being lined up. But it's a mm-hmm. it's a nice way to to mix your time in between, you know, this commercial work and then prepping for your next projects and stuff, which is currently what we're doing. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's no, cool. It, it sounds like you, you have a good balance between uh, these commercials and the longer term projects like the documentaries and stuff. So, so yeah, it's good. You have a, it's good that you get to do both. All right. So I just have a few questions from friends of yours. I, I always wrap yeah. up these interviews with, the, with Let's those. Let's do that. But just before we get into that, I just wanted to have your perspective on skateboarding today. So as you said, you're 45 today. You still skate. I, I, I see on Instagram you're skating very often and still at a very high level. You seem to be just having fun. You're not like trying to jump on a huge rail or a big set of stairs or whatever. You're just having fun. So yeah, I was just curious to know what, what do you think of skateboarding today? As, as you mentioned before, like the Olympics just happened. The shoe game is controlled by all the main shoe uh, manufacturers. Um, and yeah, just pretty much skateboarding has become more mainstream as it has ever been. And yeah, just what's your perspective on it today? Yeah, my perspective on skating today, it's, um, it's positive because uh, I just like to see what I like. You know, what I don't like, I can also move on. I don't need to, you know, kind of dwell on it. It doesn't really matter to me. I, I even like that there's jocks in skating, you know, people training and push-ups and repeating yeah, yeah. tricks and not, not smiling and, you know, AirPods and just like attitude. And I like it because it's so different from what I know or what I like, but I, I like it because it also makes me laugh and I, I don't mind so much. Yeah, yeah, I just, yeah. um, I'm happy to have an open mind with, with skateboarding because, yeah, I, I can enjoy it myself. You know, it's such a blessing to be skating till today and, and having fun. I can still learn some tricks. I can still film a little clip on Instagram with iPhones and, and just kind of, you know, be stoked to get something yeah, just yeah. like back in the day. This is interesting. It doesn't change, you know, it's you still kind of want to get some tricks. Mm -hmm. But it's cool to also kind of not be sponsored. I buy my stuff. I mean, recently I've been receiving some shoes for Van from Vance and I'm so oh, cool. happy. <laughs> yeah, Chris Fanner is hooking it up and thank you. But it's weird because I was a sponsored skater for a long time. I did buy, I mean, you know, I bought my stuff from 11 till 20 years old. So I know what it is to buy skateboard products and how... Sure. I didn't have the money, you know, I had to hustle so hard to get my stuff. I sometimes didn't pay the train. Uh, I get money from my parents to go to school, you know, yeah. and I get some money for some sandwich and I just keep everything to buy skateboards, you know, and just kind of lie to the controller and speak in English and just kind of start hustling from a young age. So, so to keep skateboarding today and being mixing with like all these interesting individuals and then all these kids, whether in Berlin or when I, when I travel, there's so many cool kids skating. Mm -hmm. And that's what I like. I like to, to see the people that inspire me. And that's what's cool. There's just all these different kind of skateboarding. You, you, like, you like only want to do slappies, you go to the slappy place. You want to skate some ramps, skate the ramps. We have a cool skate park here. And then some of the better sponsored skaters are kind of all there in the winter, mm -hmm. like training mode. But you go there and you smile and you laugh and, and some people catch it, you know. And, and I think skateboarding is evolving in a nice way where there should be a place for everyone. So for me, it's important to train and help and contribute on making it more inclusive and, and less male dominated because yeah, I suffered from patriarchy and just too much male domination in skateboarding and it was not so interesting for me or others to not skate uh, with women for instance or all types of uh, people and backgrounds so sure it wasn't really happening back then but today it is and so if i can help in any way you know to make it like something welcoming and i am definitely interested about that and also in our work so 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, skateboarding is awesome and it's always hard to do, you know. And that's why I don't think it can ever be such a mainstream thing. It's never going to be easy to do. It's always hard. It always hurts when the board hits your shin. <laughs> and so this is why anybody who skates more than five years and then 10 years and then more, well, they're skateboarders and then they're my peers, you know, because we have a lot to share with. So. Yeah. I appreciate that, you know, because all these other sports is like you can kick a ball and score a football, you know, you can throw the basket and eventually it goes in, you know, mm-hmm. but you you can't just ollie or drop in or really anything. It you takes know? some so. commitment and uh, perseverance. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, even longboarding, I'm down. If somebody wants yeah, a longboard sure. and they're smiling, they're a skateboarder. I'm going to high five them. <laughs> I think it's really cool. You know, dancing on a longboard. That's hard. It's cool. Like, why would it not be cool? You know, so sure. it's just this thing where we were kind of, you know, hard and like judging and stuff for, for a while. Yeah. I know I was as well. You know, I, I was kind of dissing on rollerblades. But then all of a sudden in Brussels, we had all these rollerblader friends who were skating with us every day. And they were just as nice as your friends. And mm-hmm. we became friends, you know. So it's just this thing of like maybe spending your energy on what is positive is what interests me, at least. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very good philosophy there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, thanks. All right. Let's, uh, let's wrap up with the questions from your friends. So, well, I have a bunch of questions from uh, Scott Bourne, but uh, I'm not sure I can ask you all of these because it's going to take us another two hours. I asked him if he could record it on his phone, but actually, as you know, he doesn't have a phone. And so actually, that's one of his questions because he says, what is it like for Julian to deal with Scott without a phone? Yeah, I love Scott. I love uh, what he stands for. And he's one of the friends who really sticks to his guns. So he still does not have a phone. And I love that about him. And I can, I call his landline and call his phone. He's there or he's not there. I leave a message. He calls me back. So it's not difficult at all. And, you know, he does have email. So we are still in touch and it's no problem. I I accept him how he is, of course. (laughs) Okay, I'll ask you this one. This is about your trip to Mongolia, which you mentioned earlier in 2004. I believe we were the, two, the only two guys that avoided a serious fight one night because we were all at a strip bar and one of the Yama guys started an epic fight. Ask him about touring with those guys, the best dudes ever. Yeah, Mongolia. Yeah, so I, it's funny, I don't really remember that, but I remember kind of going out to bars and stuff like that in Mongolia. And then Chris Fanner and Muki Hutsik. They were totally down to linger in the streets. And Scott and I were like, we need to go, you know, like, let's just keep on walking and we go home, no? Yeah. yeah. But they're just happy to talk with like some guys and, and the guys were drinking straight bottles of vodkas in the streets. And there's this yeah. thing in Mongolia where they like to wrestle because okay. that's the number one sport. And so there's this thing where they do the eagle dance and they put the arms in the air and just kind of do this dance and stuff. And then they want to wrestle you and kind of like fight with you pretty much. Wow. You know? And so I don't know how the escalation started, but I remember Chris coming home one night and his nose exploded and Muki lost his glasses. And so they were in a proper fight with Mongolians in Ulaanbaatar just, just by themselves because I think Scott and I or the rest of the crew, we just, you know, managed to get home. Mm-hmm. So it, I don't know if I don't have such a story. Just this thing of like, it's good to know when it's time to go home, you know, and not like dwell. <laughs> he mentions also a session that you two had in Barcelona when you filmed his uh, Carhartt part. I assume he's talking about the Carhartt Spectra video. 
He said you filmed that part in one day. It was just you and him skating around Barcelona. It was so fun. You see us just fucking off and having a good time in the very beginning of my part. Yeah, I don't know if you have anything to share about that uh, that specific session he's mentioning. Well, yeah, I mean, so with Carhartt, we were filming this video called Spectra. And then Scott uh, came to Barcelona to stay at my place. And I guess we, uh, we were filming his intro with David Coulio. Okay. But I was just skating with Scott and showing him around. And I think he loved that I showed him like really fucked up bank spots that he loved. And so that was really fun for him because I, I curated the day for him no? Mm -hmm. and made sure he had like some good stuff to do everywhere. And it turned out to be one of those days now where he got a lot of stuff and, and it was just super fun. And, you know, it flowed. It felt natural. And yeah. so... It's always been something I enjoy, you know, to when I was like looking at people skateboarding and then just kind of looking at the talent they have and then finding spots and then looking for interesting architecture is like super important. Yeah. Almost half the, the part of the skating is the spot. Have you know? the trick basically. Yeah. 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 All right. I have questions from two other people, two other people. So let, let's, uh, let's do those. Fun. Hi, Julian. When we first met more than 20 years ago, you were a punk rock singer in a music band called Looking Up. I remember seeing you yelling on the mic shirtless during concerts. Now I see you being a manager and producer for very aesthetic videos. And I think now in those videos, we will hear mostly electronic or even hip hop music. So how you made the transition between being a punk rock singer to a producer for such videos. Hope you'll find. Bye-bye. That's a cool question, Ben. I like <laughs> it. Yeah, I think life evolves, you know, like I was a punk rocker, but I don't really listen to punk rock so much anymore. I love uh, independent music and songwriting and craft, you know, and but I listen to all kind of music, mm -hmm. maybe more from instrument based than electronics. Okay. But still also listen to electronic music. And I think the music coming in, the commercials we do, comes from the taste of the director, but also the taste of the brand. And we're trying always to put this uh, quality of independent music in it, whether it's going to be electronics or hip hop beats. But honestly, uh, I would invite uh, Ben to listen to the commercials because the music is good. Perfect. All right. So the very last question, unfortunately, I don't have audio. Uh, it's from uh, your friend Julien Bachelier from Antilles. He said, why did we call you the princess during the Antilles tours? I didn't know that. So I was like, what, what the hell is he talking about? <laughs> oh, I have a couple nicknames. They're fun, you know. Okay. I have the Shame of Belgium from Dallas, Dallas Rockvam, who did uh, Frank skateboards after oh, yeah, yeah, writing yeah. for Antilles. Dallas called me the Shame of Belgium because when I drink, I just drink, you know, one beer or two beers and I'm already happy and joyful. And, you know, I'm not like, uh, I'm not super destroy and blanking out. I know what I'm doing if I'm partying, I guess, or drinking. Sure. I mean... I've been drinking less and less, I guess, also these days. But uh, mm -hmm. it's just this thing. I, I liked it, this, this nickname, the shame of Belgium, because it's just <laughs> so funny, you know? It's not the pride of Belgium, it's the shame <laughs> of Belgium, because I'm not the guy who can drink everybody under the table and go like, drink, yeah, drink, yeah, drink. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe it's cool. I like it to think that 
when I was like in those positions in skateboarding, mm-hmm. I was trying to show a better role model. I didn't want to be the role model, but I was showing like a model of like, well, yeah, let's skate. And then eventually maybe, okay, we'll, we're going to party because now tonight something's happening. And then we party and we dance all night. And then maybe the next day we go see some things about the country we're in and just see f- things, you know. But I I definitely didn't want to be encouraging like drinking every day, all day. And, and so I sure. never buy I never buy beers uh, in the afternoon or, you know, because we had sometimes some budgets, you know, with Carhartt and Ruka, we always had budgets, but I would never do that. I would just get some water, okay. make sure everybody's fine. And I think it's a bit of a problem sometimes in skateboarding just to encourage people to just drink all day. Just yeah, the par- party lifestyle a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, it could be working better sometimes if it's like, okay, and now we're at the bar and we did skate all day really well. So now you can have whatever you like, you know. Sure. But um, people will do what they need to do. You know, it's just like that. You know, this is great. There's so much freedom within skateboarding that people mm-hmm. will do what they have to do and then also learn from mistakes. And I did my mistakes in many, many other ways, right? So it's just this thing of like, you know, you just have to experience it. And then the second nickname, Princess, was by the Antis guys because I would set up all these trips, you know, we'd go to Greece, we'd go to everywhere. We went everywhere with Antis. And everywhere we went, we never had a budget for hotel, ever. And Airbnb didn't (laughs) exist. There's no smartphones, you know. Okay. It was a prehistoric ages. So we would like go and sleep at the distributor's house, the skate shop's owner's house, and we always crash there or we had some tents and crash on the beach or in a park. Yeah. And we slept here in, in Berlin on the first Antis tour. We slept in the Tiergarten Park, which is really? mind-blowing because it's like the very beautiful park in the center, you know? But yeah, I've been there. Yeah, yeah, for sure. We we just saw so much green and then we saw a road and just parked the van and punked it, you know, and <laughs> you didn't get kicked out. How do you say kicked out? Yeah, we got kicked out in the morning. Yeah, by the cops. I mean, the neighbor probably walked that dog and, you know, found some police, but okay. it was easy. It was always polite and we never leave all our stuff. You know, we we're pretty responsible. Yeah, yeah. So it was at- it was working, but he called me, uh, they called me princess because I told everyone, okay, we're going, you know, we have two cars. Usually we had Loic's car and then maybe another car or sometimes we had a van, you know, but it was tiny and we were like so many skaters. So I tell everyone in the mail and pack the smallest possible bag possible. <laughs> but then me, I would come with like the biggest <laughs> pack bag. Because I needed to change shirts every day. I had this little mattress for my back. And I was a princess, uh, admittedly. <laughs> okay, okay, I see. <laughs> I still travel with huge bags. And, and my partner is always making fun of me of you know, how much clothing I bring. So, yeah, I, I just have to accept, uh, accept that, you know. Em- embrace it, yeah. <laughs> I embrace it, yeah. I bring tons of shirts. <laughs> That's amazing. All right, well, I think that that's, uh, how do you say, that's a wrap. Sick, cool. Thank you, Quentin. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Julian. Thank you so much for uh, chatting with me. Really appreciate it. That's it for my conversation with Julian Dykmans. You can follow him on Instagram at Julian Dykmans, D-Y-K-M-A-N-S. To learn more about his work, follow at Cascade Berlin or go visit their website, cascade.berlin. Go watch some of Julian's skate parts for Consolidated and Antis on YouTube. I will put some links up in the description as well as some of the content we mentioned throughout our conversation like the Hermes commercials he produced with Fred Martin and Thomas Campbell. 
Thank you for tuning in. See you soon for a new episode of Beyond Boards.